Hi and welcome to Terra.2's climate podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Divya Sharma. Divya is the executive director at Climate Groups India office. A thought leader, researcher, academician, she consult experience spanning nearly two decades operating throughout India and internationally within the sustainable urban development and climate resilience space. She has a doctorate in urban climate resilience and a master's in urban development planning. Divya has extensively worked with national, state and municipal governments in India and abroad, regional, national and international development agencies and foundations and international research community and academia. She has been in prestigious advisory positions on international and national networks for sustainable development and climate change internationally and at the national level. I'm Kirti Manyan and I'll be your host for today. Hi Divya, welcome to the show. I'm going to get started by asking you this. How did you get started on your journey in climate change? I'm very happy to be here and talking to everyone about the subject. So Basically, I'm an architect urban planner, and it's a surprise when people hear me talking about my educational qualification. But then I worked a little bit as an architect, very early days, but then I jumped into urban planning and that to urban development planning. And as I embarked my journey into urban development planning, those very early days when people had started talking about climate change in India, and I, I got very interested in sustainability issues when they related to urban development and also climate change i pursued my phd on urban resilience and that's how actually my career in urban resilience started i was working in terry the energy and resources institute and i set up their urban resilience practice while working with the center for research on sustainable urban development and transport systems and that was there when i started working on climate change issues i started researching on climate change issues and i also started writing and speaking about climate change issues from there there was this time when the rockefeller foundation started their asian cities climate change resilience network which was a great initiative that they started from 10 cities in total out of which there were three cities in india and we were like the very first members to that initiative and i was part of it that just started from scratch so that is my starting point in the climate change regime and there's so much that went on after that in cities working with cities working with state governments working on different issues working on adaptation disaster risk reduction working on some of the mitigation issues and looking at policies and looking at public policies and mainstreaming climate resilience into urban development planning basically that sounds brilliant and now in your role with the climate group can you tell us more about that what is the nature of your organization and what kind of impact do you have yes yeah, sure so climate group works with forward looking businesses and states to accelerate climate action we are an international ngo we are headquartered in uk and our offices are in america in china and india and i had their daily offices with businesses we run our campaigns there are three campaigns re100 ep100 and ev100 campaigns 
where company takes a time-bound pledge to further climate-related actions and business sustainability. RE100 was launched in 2014. The companies commit to sourcing 100% renewable power by 2050. And more than 2016 global companies are on the platform as of today. And CDP is the partner to Climate Group on RE100 at the moment. EP100, which is energy productivity, was launched around 2015 or 2016. Under this campaign, companies pledge to improve their energy productivity by deploying energy-efficient technologies and practices. And the purpose of this particular program was that while the companies and businesses take their time to transition to renewable energy 100%, there is still a lot to be done in terms of reducing GHG emissions by becoming energy efficient. And particularly these large industries who have a lot of scope and potential to reduction in GHG emissions through energy productivity measures. The third one is EV100, which was launched in 2017, where companies commit to a 100% EV transition. And we've recently had a Flipkart join us in India on the EV100 program. And then the purpose is to make electric transport the, the new normal by 2030. So more than 88 global companies have joined EV100 so far. Our aim is to bring more and more businesses who hold the biggest opportunity to mitigate emissions under the fold of our ambitious commitment programs to drive change in markets as well as policies. Our other campaign is the under two campaign where we work very closely with subnational governments to help them prepare themselves and help them transition to becoming carbon-free and also taking climate action and working around the policy framework towards climate change and climate action. So that's another of our flagship campaign that we work with. And at the moment, we are working with four states very closely in India. Of course, there are many states globally that we work with. And these four states are our member, but there are other about 10 to 15 states with whom we interact very closely and keep engaged in supporting them in some of the plans that they have towards climate action. Can you tell me the names of the states? And when you talk about supporting them, can you maybe give me a few examples of how you're doing that? Yes, so we have Jammu and Kashmir, we have West Bengal with us, we have Telangana and Chhattisgarh. These are the four states that we work with. And for example, with uh, West Bengal, we were supporting them on EVs. And actually in Kolkata, they're starting to deploy electric buses within their public transport fleet. So this kind of work. And there's another project called Carbon Footprint Project that we have where we support state governments in specific technical assistance that they want from us in reducing their carbon footprint. And it could be anything on the mitigation side of things. So basically mitigation means efforts and activities that we do to mitigate GHG emissions. And adaptation activities are those activities where we do something to cope with the impact of climate change. So we know that some change has already happened and has happened for good. Some mm. change has happened that is irreversible now. 
so the effect of that irreversible climate change has to be coped up so those coping strategies are called adaptation strategies these could be around our the agricultural sectors these could be around influencing our systems to look at water security or food security or even disaster risk reduction and preparing for extreme events so to say the disaster risk reduction is also very much part of climate action thank you for this can you tell us more about the we mean business coalition please you've already talked a little bit about re100 ep100 and ev100 can you give me any specific examples of companies and the work they're kind of doing within the scope of this space yes of course so the women business coalition is catalyzing business action and driving policy ambition to accelerate the zero carbon transition and the coalition brings together seven international not profit organizations including bsr cdp ceres clg europe the b team climate group and wbcst which is the world business council for sustainable development so within the india business work under rd100 there are four indian companies and over 60 plus global companies having india operations mm. and we are working with these companies to develop our policy and technology positions for indian corporate re sourcing market on an ongoing basis the companies report annually on their progress and the indian companies are tata motors infosys mahindra holidays and dalmia cement under ep100 eight indian companies including five mahindra group companies godrej industries dalmia cement and ultratech are part of the ep100 program mahindra heavy engine in limited is the first indian company to meet its commitment of double energy productivity in a record duration of within 4 years as opposed to 25 years which is a right. great feat we are also supporting a few ep100 companies to identify cooling efficiency opportunities under the ep100 cooling challenge at the moment and conducting factory visits at high excellence sites of indian ep100 members to promote knowledge exchange between members and the industry at large under ev100 eight indian companies including sbi state bank of india wipro bscs yamuna and rajdhani bscs rajdhani i mean bounce and shuttle and of course as i said flipkart and mindspace are our newest member and mindspace is a reality kerahejas entity we are supporting a few ev100 companies to develop their 2020 ev transition roadmaps we are also creating ev transition roadmaps to explore the potential of market shift in the airports and e-commerce industry segments so having flipkart with us is also going to be very very an important part of our work here all the examples are amazing these are all big companies doing their bit in that sense right so it's a great examples thank you so much for that now i want to talk a little bit about covid and connecting the dots between covid renewable energy and india's future with regard to corporate sourcing of renewable energy do you think this will bring about a green transition yes i think we all have a role to play so india will have more renewable energy in the grid within the country we've set to achieve our target of 175 gigawatt by 2022 and our ambition is to have 450 gigawatt by 2030 the policy push for re domestically compounded by global trends of greater re adoption has pushed the re prices to 
be highly competitive to conventional power from coal at the moment, which is a good sign, I guess. The environment and social responsibility, importantly, along with cost economics running in favor of renewable energy, is making Indian businesses to demand for renewable energy. And the higher RE in the grid offers corporates with more options to source renewable energy. So that is on the business side of it. Now, the impact of COVID has brought the conversation on business sustainability at the front and center. And building back better is understood as central to this transition. So use of RE, for example, becomes a naturally reinforcing option for India's green energy transition. And so things look quite promising at the moment, I would say. Having said that, state rules for corporate sourcing on RE are still very uncertain at many places. And that limits the higher uptake as many as Indian companies would have explained. So I think that is something, an area to work upon. But overall mm -hmm. and broadly, I think we are on track. And things look good. And there is a conversation that in spite of COVID, we would be taking good care of our actions on climate change and transition to renewable energy in particular as a country. So you talked about state rules, right? I would be kind of keen to know, are there particular states that are in favor and there are some who are not? Or, or is it a question of laws not having come up to the point where they say, okay, we can kind of get this going as soon as possible. I'm just trying to understand why the lag really. Yeah, so I think I would say that there are different stages of priorities that the states would have. And I don't want to be a spokesperson on the side of the state or against them. But I would say from my experience and that we see while working with state governments, there is a lot of interest within the states. And uh, people are very quickly prioritizing their demand or their work towards climate action and being on the right side of the things. The only thing is that policy takes a bit of mm -hmm. time to be implemented, mm -hmm. amended, to be changed. And there's also some level of technical assistance that is needed. Right. Uh, entities like us are very happy to provide and we are engaging with state governments. We are engaging at different levels of government, not only state governments. But I would say when it comes to policy, we will have to be cognizant of the fact that there is time that it will take, but also a lot of preparation and a lot of technical support that goes into it, which is being done. And I think it is a matter of time when we would have a good critical mass to say that we have conducive policies and right technological inputs and right networks and partnerships that are working in close cooperation with uh, state governments and subnational government in India to make it happen. Thank you for that clarification. And it sounds good. It, it really sounds like governments are kind of on the right track and they want to do best intent really in their heads in that sense. I want to move on to climate resilience in Indian cities. And you talked about the AACRN, which is the Asian Cities Climate Change Resilience Network. And you've had, you were heavily involved in this. It was a nine-year-long initiative supported by Rockefeller Foundation. Do you think the lessons learned from that time still hold through? And we'd love to know more about how you were involved as well. Yes, of course. So I was part of their executive committee of the initiative itself for India. And it's a great community of practitioners that was built at that time when ACCRN was implemented in India. And I'm very happy to be part of that initiative. 
in terms of what we did was that it did start from three cities but in 7 to 8 years of its existence in india it multiplied and it scaled up in india like anything there were about 40 cities that were touched upon in different levels of activities different types of activities in these cities but the three starting cities were the core to our work there and then it i mean there were seven in total that were that did a lot of detailed work within that initiative so basically it started with the government engagement so talking with the municipal corporations talking with the state governments looking at development planning processes looking at the land use planning processes in urban areas in in india to get a good hack of how institutionally urban development works and what are the entry points for climate subjects on climate and resilience particularly to be mm-hmm. brought into the urban development framework so it basically started with that and then we got very specific questions from our engagement from government the questions were what are these climate impacts how are they going to impact us of course we have one flood here and there and these are like old days 10 years back 12 years back and they asked us very pertinent questions and some of these questions are still being asked i mean why should i be concerned i am a municipal commissioner i am a municipality my job is to manage urban areas my job is on sanitation my job is on road building and cleaning of drainages and and likewise and there we came to know about finding out the correct entry points the correct partners to work with to bring these things to the fore and the basic question about who is vulnerable what are the vulnerabilities what is the risk and how does this risk translate to some of the urban systems what does it mean for my infrastructure for example what does it mean mm. for health sector or transport sector for that matter so we started making sense of that and in parallel we were also looking at developing climate projections looking at the science of it so what are the global projections saying and by that time we had regional models also so we knew what are the regional climate projections saying about some of the areas that we were looking at so for example india and those regional analyses were made available to us by climate scientists thanks to them and we got those interpretation and our job as community of practitioners was to translate those regional projections to what they would mean to specific urban areas and it was difficult as well as engaging and exciting for us <laughs> to do and it translated into us preparing climate resilience strategies for specific urban areas and it was wonderful because it was a process not only driven by climate science but also a process that was deeply engagement specific we engaged with people in the city we engaged with key stakeholders in the city who were businesses who were educational institutions we engaged very deeply with the government like district government state government and also city government and through this process all these resilience strategies came forward and then we started talking about mainstreaming into institutional setup of cities we started talking about how do we fund some of these adaptation projects uh, where does the financing come from in parallel those were the time when the previous urban development flagships event was finishing and smart cities project uh, flagship scheme was being introduced in india so we were at the cusp of transitioning 
in terms of how urban development would look like in India in the coming years. And Smart City posed a completely new platform for people like us to work upon. This transitions perfectly into my next question. You know, I want to understand more about the Indian government Smart Cities initiative. And you were clearly involved in the urban planning, green cover and biodiversity group. Please give us more details on some of the key sectoral recommendations that came through. Okay. So this is a group that is being convened by the Ministry of Housing and Urban Affairs. And it is sitting with the National Institute of Urban Affairs. It was launched formally as Climate Smart Cities Assessment Framework. And it basically helps to provide roadmap for cities towards combating climate change while planning as well as implementing their actions through various investments that are being made in urban areas, specific urban areas. And it also intends to inculcate climate-sensitive approach to urban planning and development. So not only we want to talk about the present times, but we also want to talk about how we go about doing this in the future. So the framework has 28 indicators across five categories, developed after review of global frameworks and other assessment approaches. And finally, we have these five categories and some of the subject areas that we want to touch upon. So just to give you a glimpse of what these are, basically this framework has six pillars. One is research and knowledge management. The second one is capacity building. The third is partnership. This policy, innovations, communication, and advocacy. And these are all support systems that the cities would be looking at through this initiative. Now, some of the areas that are looked at are mobility and air quality, waste management, water management, energy and green buildings, and urban planning, green cover, and biodiversity. And I was part of the urban planning and green cover biodiversity. I was, I am part of the working group there. And under this, we are looking at rejuvenation and conservation of water bodies and open areas. We are looking at proportion of green cover in, in cities. And we are also defining the way we, we define green cover as to does it mean foliage? Does it mean recover? Does it mean green areas? Does it mean buffer zones in cities mm. and also urban diversity? Because we think that urban diversity are very important, a part of urban ecosystem, and it influences the quality of microclimates of any area and the weather of any area. And it also directly influences livability of cities. So unlike of the notion that cities can thrive with buildings and flyovers, this particular notion of climate-sensitive and biodiversity-sensitive and eco-sensitive urban planning says that we cannot live without an ecosystem balance. It will ultimately lead us to a perishing situation. We cannot survive without proper biodiversity and ecosystem balance. And then there is disaster resilience that is part of it. And I spoke about it in my previous response. So disaster resilience is very important because we see that there are increasing frequency of disasters. And not only the frequency is increasing, but the impact of these disasters, the loss and damage that is happening is also grave. And particularly for India, where the vulnerability is 
many folds because of our population, because of the poverty levels. We are struck very, very heavily from these disasters. It is also a lot of investments before the event, but also after the event to yeah. bring us back. So building back is really a big investment to make. So it's very important for us to start looking at building better rather than building back. And of course, city climate action plans, because each city is unique. I mean, in India itself is unique. If you go to north, the situation and the type of cities and the topographical and the climate features are completely different from the cities in the coast areas and the cities in the south, so to say, just to give an example. So the planning parameters changed quite drastically when we are talking about a hill city and talking about a, a coastal city, for example. So this is all about it in a nutshell. Thank you so much. I think the examples are really, really helpful just for us to understand what the whole network really was about. Can we now talk a little bit about the C40 Cities Finance Facility? A red there facilitates access to finance for climate change mitigation and resilience projects in cities. Can you give us more details about how the objectives were realized in practice? Okay. So I was involved briefly with this C40 Cities Finance Facility. And part of my job was to navigate the current literature, to navigate the current state of play on transformative impact of the city's finance facility itself. So the work that C40 is doing with cities on climate action planning is really significant. And I was required with my team and within that project was to look at what is the transformation that is happening through mm -hmm. this work. And what I was doing on and what we were doing on rather is to develop an operational definition with a set of measurable indicators that provide CFF with a direction on how to achieve transformative impact and how to track it. So we reviewed how these operational definition can apply and have been applying to the work undertaken by the CFF in the three pilot cities of Bogota, Mexico City, and Durban, and identify way for other organizations working in the similar realm as CFF to develop or retrofit their theories of change to achieve transformative impact. So for example, in Bogota, they were looking at a 25 kilometer long cycle corridor and uh, some of the cities like Monteria, the public bike share system was introduced. Similarly, in Mexico City, they were implementing a 22-kilometer electric bus corridor. In South Africa, the municipality of Itakwini, the clearing and maintenance up to 3,000 kilometers of water course was a big project that was under this finance facility. And Dar es Salaam was reducing the vulnerability of Mimbazi uh, floodplain to extreme climate-related flooding. So there was various projects that these cities were taking up. And we were trying to understand that these standalone projects, what potential do they have to one, scale up, and two, bring transformation and larger and bigger and long-term impacts. Got it. Thanks so much for that. I want to talk about informed climate activism. Do you think it holds value or do you think it's just noise? Okay, so we are on the side of things as climate group where we believe in being part of the action rather than just the voice. And mm -hmm. when I say that, I do not discount the value of voicing issues. But somehow find myself in that particular regime where I'm part of a big community of practitioners 
who believe in the urgency of climate action and work relentlessly towards making that happen by supporting, by assisting, by researching, and of course, advocating about climate action. So I would say as long as it is part of taking actions, as long as it is part of bringing solutions to the fore, I think it's more than welcome. And we closely work with businesses that have a great influencing power on correct policies and creating the critical mass to bring about change and impact. And also work with government in assisting and supporting them by technical inputs, providing them platforms for learning from best practices, as well as showcasing their work to the larger national and international audiences. Do you personally have heroes in the climate movement, someone you look up to, for instance? Several. <laughs> and I would add how matter small these are. There are several such climate movements. And I would say the stage we are in at the moment mm -hmm. where, yeah. where there is an urgency to climate action, even a small step helps. So initiatives like ACCRN, which later on graduated to become the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative, have actually brought in a lot of change in the way cities look at climate change, for example. And I'm talking about cities not because I come from that background, but because cities, urban centers are actually contributing a lot to GHG emissions. And they mm. also have a lot of potential to reduction of GHG emissions. I mean, these initiatives have created a community of practitioners that has extended their work globally and also in India and have created networks that have the capacity to influence decision making towards our common goal. They've left that mark, they've left that legacy of community, of practitioners, of government leaderships, for that matter, that mm. will keep working on these things. This might seem also a bit odd, but I have always looked up to the work Climate Group has been doing on climate change. Our ambition is what drives me now. And it was also that drove me to apply to be part of Climate Group in the first place. Right. <laughs> that said, I mean, immense work has been driven by support of the now Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office UK, the World Bank, USAID, ADB. I mean, ADB has set up a trust fund for resilience in their uh, headquarters in Manila. And they've put in significant investments on climate change that are driving long-term change towards climate proofing our systems and reducing vulnerability of the population from climate change. I like this point you made about cities being like some of the greatest emitters and yet having this potential, right? If only we could miraculously tap into that. And so everybody is wired to understand how best can we not contribute to emissions in that sense. That would make such a big difference in this world, right? So thanks for that. I think a very valuable point there. Now to my last question, what do we need to do to save the planet? It's my big question, it's something I keep asking all our podcast guests. What would your call of action be to our listeners? Sure, that's a very good question. I would say it's urgent and it's high time for collective action. I would emphasize on that. The need is to accelerate climate action, take bold steps and stop shying away from the collective responsibility. Ask questions, challenge if you have to, but act and join the force. That would be my simple answer to your very difficult <laughs> question. Thanks so much, Divya. I had a lovely, lovely time talking to you and I got so many insights about cities and I think you really love cities. It really, really shines through in the way you talked about them and you definitely have passion for that. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. <laughs>